taking of the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. The Word of God says in Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, observing the wicked and the good. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Well, hello, everyone. We've been praying for you. Uh, we hope that the last podcast uh, it helped it helped you kind of discover and, and find out. It's not going to be some some secret thing that you're going to be taking, and uh, it's it's going to be out front. And Lord, we man, we we just prayed that today that that the Lord blesses every bit of this, uh, uh, every bit of that podcast that people can people can take it in and uh, really ponder and think about it. And if you have any questions, go ahead and email us. Uh, get us uh, get us an email back to us so we can. Um, have a discussion about it, maybe even help you along the way. Let's go ahead and welcome on Brian. Brian, welcome aboard. Well, hello, Curtis, and let me just say it is so awesome. You sound clear as crystal. You want to tell how the Lord has uh, blessed the podcast? Yeah, we uh, we actually got a, a microphone for this end of the this end of the podcast. So we got a microphone, a stand, and uh, the USB ports and all the stuff that needs to go along. Uh, headphones that go with it. So yeah, the Lord's uh, Lord's blessing things as we move along. Amen. Sounding, I mean, honestly, it, it sounds clear as crystal. I mean, and and you get to look at my ugly mug <laughs> through the new means too. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> We'll keep trying different formats till we get this all right. Absolutely. Maybe one day I'll show up with a clown nose or something, make you laugh the whole time. <laughs> yeah, this could be dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing we're not doing a video yet, huh? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but maybe, you know, hopefully, here before too long, maybe we get it uploaded somehow or another. Yeah, that would be pretty good. Get it back on the YouTube channel and try to start doing that. Absolutely. That'd be so, great. So. Well, let's go ahead and jump right in, because we're we're. I know this is probably going to press for some time, um, but last week we talked about the mark of the beast and the end times and stuff, and so we wanted to kind of go into another week of just talking about some things. So, but but the study, or um, I, I was kind of wanting to discuss the eschatology, and and so I think Brian, let's go ahead and start off with define an eschatology what is meant by that and what's that what's the meaning of that word well this is going to kind of come down to as we're talking about some of the the confusing words a little bit later in the podcast but a lot of these theological terms came from uh, or come from greek terms so for instance the uh, Mm. word in greek eschaton means last things it means the end towards like the end for instance we could even say the in the eschaton uh, that would literally mean in the end. Um, logos it it means it means word. Uh, some of the Greek words have a have a little wide had of a wider span of meaning than necessarily the English words do. But of course, even with English, bank can mean a financial institution, or it can mean a slope next to a creek. You know, um, 
but you know, so so Greek words are the same way. So logos can mean speech, it can mean word, but it can also mean the study of something. So if you put if you merge eschaton with logos together, you have the study of the end times. Um, I see. So that's essentially what eschatology means: studying the end times. I see. So in that, if we're studying the end times and in, in wanting to understand that, could you maybe go in and explain some of the various eschatological viewpoints that Christians hold? And I hope I said that right. Oh, you, you nailed it, man. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> professional, I'm yeah. telling you. That's a professional job. <laughs> <laughs> This is going to take a little bit of parsing out, so bear with me, um, because I actually had to map this out so that I didn't forget anything. When we come to eschatological interpretations, exegesis and hermeneutics, how we interpret prophecy determines a lot in the the conclusions that we hold. So Mm -hmm. if you think of one big tree... Just think of a massive tree. For instance, like next to my grandpa's house, we had a tree like that. He had a tree like this. One tree that's branched out into two big, two big stems are coming off. It's branched into two major sections. That's kind of what happens with eschatology. You have two main schools of thought, and so bear with me. We'll we'll filter down, but we've got to decipher some of these things because it actually impacts how we come to premillennialism and amillennialism and postmillennialism. That'll come in later. Absolutely. The two main branches, the two main primary branches of eschatology come down between the the families of dispensationalism and covenantalism. there are three things. Charles Ryrie, a dispensationalist, this describes three things that sets dispensationalism apart. Um, the first thing is that dispensationalists hold that prophecies are to be interpreted literally. Now, that's not to say there couldn't be some analogy to it. it couldn't, there couldn't be some spiritual meaning to it as well. But when God makes a promise to the nation Israel... He intends that to be for the nation of Israel. For okay? Israel. For Israel right. itself. Um, so, number one, dispensationalists hold that prophecies are interpreted literally. Now, covenantalists would say prophecies can be interpreted metaphorically or, or analogically. It, 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 it has a you know, metaphor to it. Some prophecies can hold that manner. Two, dispensationalists, according to Ryrie, hold that the church is separate from Israel. Now, here is the key critical um, difference between these two systems of thought. Dispensationalists hold that there are certain things that are promised to the children of God and other things that are promised to the nation of Israel. They exist as two separate entities. Covenantalists hold to what's called a replacement theology, indicating that the church has replaced Israel. So when God makes a promise to Israel, that's interpreted being symbolic of the church itself. So that the church is fulfilling, God is fulfilling these prophecies through the church, and that's how you get some of the amillennial and postmillennial viewpoints. 
And so the third thing is, and, and really I think both views would hold the third point, that the plan of God has always been to glorify himself in order to bring people to himself. And so I think covenantalists right. would hold to that. So I think the two critical differences between dispensationalists and covenantalists uh, are that one, dispensationalists hold that prophecies are to be interpreted literally, whereas covenantalists would say that it's to be uh, interpreted analogically or metaphorically, I should say. And the second one is that uh, dispensationalists hold that the church and Israel are two different entities, whereas covenantalists hold that the church has replaced Israel. Okay, so when we, when we come into covenantalism, you have two different schools of thought. Uh, traditional covenantalism, which in, highly emphasizes the church's replacement of Israel, and then progressive covenantalists, which are a little bit lighter in their interpretation of that, uh, but they still they still hold to you know um, spiritual interpretations to a certain degree. Now, even in dispensationalism, you hold two schools of thought: Pr- traditional dispensationalism and progressive dispensationalism. The traditional dispensationalists are going to hold that the church is used because Israel failed. Because Israel failed, then the church is used to evangelize the world. Progressive dispensationalism is a little bit different. Uh, Progressive dispensationalism comes from Daryl Bach and some guys at um, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. Actually, some folks at Liberty hold the same view. Progressive dispensationalists believe that God's plan has always been the same, and that's to save the lost. And he's worked through these different dispensations to save the lost. He he planned to use Israel for a season, then he plans to use the church for a season, but then the difference is, is he's going to come back and use Israel at the very end. Uh, and so that again holds to that distinction between the church and um Israel, but at the same time, it, it's a unilateral viewpoint, meaning that the church didn't replace Israel necessarily because Israel failed, but all it was in the plan of God is moving towards this end result. So it's more unified in some degrees. Um, there are distinctions between, but that's primarily uh, the the majors between the viewpoints. And, and then from there you go into, uh, I mean, I don't know if we want to cover this right now, but we'll go ahead and just hit it just, uh, just on the surface level. Then you have the viewpoints concerning millennialism. Um, to understand this, we need to go over to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And, and uh, Curtis, would you mind reading that for us? Revelation 20, 1 through 6. <laughs> you thought you pulled a good one on me. I, I'm right there already. <laughs> Man, you're killing me on these Sword of the Lord drills, I'm telling you. (laughs) It's all paper Bible too, buddy. (laughs) Well, yeah, mine is too. (laughs) And my fingers aren't cooperating Uh, with me. (laughs) So Revelation Revelation 20, verse 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Yeah, now the key word three. there, key word there is a thousand years. A millennium mm-hmm. means a thousand. A thousand years, yeah. Verse three, and threw him into the pit and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. 
After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on the on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead. Can it, you also hand. see there again the link between worshipping the beast and the reception of the mark, as we just as discussed last time. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So, so you see the key word in that is a thousand. And even I think there's a distinction to, to see in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life right. until the thousand years were completed. So, you know, anyhow, we won't get into all of that. But the, the question is, when does Christ return to establish a kingdom? The, those who hold pre, the premillennialist view believe that Jesus returns to set up a literal kingdom for a thousand years. Now, does it have to be exactly a thousand years? Well, maybe, maybe not. But they do hold that uh, he comes and establishes a kingdom on the earth literally during that period of time. That's why Christ comes before establishing the millennial reign. That's why we call it pre or before millennialism. Post-millennialists, post meaning after, believes that the church is actually working, Is we're in the millennium now according to this viewpoint, and the church is working to establish peace and harmony and getting the gospel out there. And once peace, harmony, and the gospel has been shared to a certain degree, then Christ will come and perfect it on earth. Um, and then there's the amillennialist view, which is actually very very similar to the postmillennialist view. Ah means no in Greek. Millennial, of course, means a thousand years. So amillennialism literally means no millennium. No, no and, millennium. And so in that interpretation, the millennial reign of Christ is through the rule of the church. And so it's not a literal thousand years. It's, it's symbolic they hold in that interpretation. Because remember, again, the interpretive styles between covenantalism and dispensationalism in their in their in their in the depiction you have in amillennialism, it's hard to say amillennialism. Uh, in this viewpoint, we are living in the millennium. Once uh, the, the reign of Christ has been finished on earth, then instead of two coming, you know, comings, you know, rapture and then second coming, Christ is just going to come, raise the dead, um, you know, and there'll be a new heaven, new earth. Uh, does the, is this creation a new heaven, a new earth, or is there a new one? Differences there are differences in opinion on that, but essentially, with the amillennialist viewpoint, they hold that we are in the millennium now, just as postmillennialists do. Now, in it gets a little more complicated. In pre yep. premillennialism, uh, you have another concept uh, called uh, based on the rapture. 
And um, and for that, let's go over to First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, I believe it is, uh, verses. Um, uh, let's go ahead and read thirteen through the end of the chapter. First Thessalonians, what? Uh, chapter four, verses thirteen through the end of the chapter, 13 through 18. And by the way, uh, for those of you out there who are interested in New Testament creeds, there is a New Testament creed in this passage of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are, are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though Jesus, or through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. All right, here's where the creed begins. That we are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry from with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of god and the dead will in christ will rise first then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with right. them pa- pa- in the pause, pause right there that term caught up in greek mm-hmm. is a term perusia in latin is i think it's raptus and we get our word okay. rapture from the Latin version, raptus, meaning rapture. And it essentially means the same thing that Greek parousia does, to be caught up. So we're caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the question in this is, when does the rapture happen? Or So, so there are several questions. Is this rapture different from the second coming of the Lord? If you say yes, then you would either hold to a pre-tribulational view or a pre-wrath view, otherwise known as mid-tribulationalism. If you believe they're the one and the same, then you you would be a post-tribulationalist. So if you're a post-tribulationist, a tribulation means this the snatching up Pre-tribulationists hold that there is a seven-year tribulation. We read about this in Revelation. By the way, it's the book of Revelation, singular. If you want to really irritate a Bible scholar, call it the book of Revelations, <laughs> plural. It's one, one revelation of Jesus Christ to John. <laughs> but, but anyhow, uh, I about lost my train of thought. Okay, anyhow, so the question is, when does this parousia happen? Is there a parousia, a rapture of the church, and then, as Daniel tells us in the 70 weeks, that this end-time tribulation, when the wrath of God is poured out on the earth, um, those who say that there's a distinction between the two would say that the rapture comes before the tribulation because those who hold this view believe that this is a time where God is, again, moving through political Israel to establish His kingdom through the nation of Israel, and He's moved back to the previous dispensation where he's moving politically, navigating through this terrain. But then also through this is when the wrath of God is coming down on earth, and that wrath is not intended for the church. 
Okay, so so pre-tribulationists believe that there's coming a time, and even when you read the teachings of Jesus, it seems like this time is, is very quick. And that's what perusium means. It means to aggressively and violently snatch something away from something, right. someone away from something, right. from harm. Right. So it's like if you see your child in the road and a truck is coming, you grab his coattail and yank him as hard as you can out of the way. Uh, right. That's the concept of that word perusia, to snatch them away from harm. And so um, Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount of Olives seems to give that suggestion as well, that the church is snatched away at a moment. Some people are left, some people some people remain. Uh, I mean, some people are snatched, some people remain. People who hold a pre-wrath view or a mid-tribulational view believes that the church goes through some or most of the tribulation until the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. So we would go through, if you're following the timeline of Revelation, we would go through the seven seals, we would go through the seven um, trumpets. There's actually even seven thunders there. We don't know what that is. That's not even revealed to us. Uh, We go through that, but when we come to the seven bowls of wrath, we're snatched out before that happens. And then the post-trib view holds that we go through all of it, uh, and then Christ comes one time, and um, that's when we see uh, that take place. So that's actually a broad, uh, just kind of skimming the landscape of these eschatological viewpoints. That's kind of the, the the eschatological tree with all of its branches, at least as it stands. Right. And there's some there's some scholarly books out there talking about both of those viewpoints that we just that we just touched on at the end. Absolutely. There's actually a book called, uh, there's books on progressive covenantalism. Uh, In fact, I think I read that book, if I'm not mistaken. And there's also a book by Daryl Bach, I've got it on my bookshelf, uh, called uh, Progressive Dispensationalism. Um, So it's it's there as well. so you know it's it's a, it's it's a good resource if you're interested in in progressive dispensationalism, right? And then and then if you get into um, like uh, Craig Keener and Dr. Michael Brown wrote a new book uh, out I think last year, um, not afraid of the Antichrist. Absolutely, that's one. Of them. Yeah. So there's some good books out there. Just be nice to be able to dig in with them and and go from there so it'd be kind of it's one of those things where i think we need to where we need to really as bible as bible learners we need to take some time to really think about it and process through it here's here's a book here's the book uh called progressive dispensationalism it's by daryl bach and craig blazing uh, both of these guys, uh, well, Blazing teaches at Dallas Theological. Uh, well, no, I'm sorry. According to this, Craig Blazing got his uh, his uh, doctorate degree from Dallas Theological, teaches at Southern Baptist Theological. Daryl Bach got his Ph.D. from the University of Aberdeen. Uh, so these guys are pretty well in the know, and he teaches right. at Dallas Theological. So they both have connection to DTS in one way or another. 
So that's some that's some big big hitters, heavy hitters. Oh, absolutely. So I think I think what this shows is, uh, unfortunately, dispensationalism has has gotten kind of the notion as being kind of a hillbilly <laughs> uh, viewpoint yeah. of scripture, and uh, you know, with ch- all the charts and stuff like that. And and I think that's unfortunate because I think th- there are some heavy hitters out there who hold to dispensationalism uh, in its various forms. Ed Heinsohn, you know, he, he teaches at Liberty. He's a uh, right. well-established yeah. scholar. Uh, I mean, the, the man is, my gosh, he, he, listening to him, he is just polished, and I could sit and listen to him all day. But he's a dispensationalist, and, you know, he's certainly no dummy. Uh, so th- there are very intelligent individual scholars on both sides of the aisle in this conversation. Yeah. So on to our next question, number three. How will have a, having a clear eschatological understanding help us in a gospel or biblical conversation? I think it's important for. I think eschatology is important for many different ways, many different reasons. I think even as you're dealing, you know, in chaplaincy, in my role in chaplaincy, I'm, de- I'm dealing with death every day. Um, if you didn't have a strong view of the resurrection. And if you didn't have a strong view of eschatology, then it would drive you insane. But I'm, I keep being reminded, even as I'm preparing for the comp this Friday in, in apologetics, that that death isn't that does, death doesn't hold the final answer uh, that Christ does, and, and he's, he's death has died in Christ Jesus. And so eschatology helps us when we understand that the situations we're facing right now, even as a nation in the world, they're only temporary. Um, when it comes to evangelism, it should encourage us. Uh, in fact, I've heard people say that dispensationalists are lazy, basically saying that you know don't don't go out and work, and you know we're just going to wait for the the Lord to come back. Right. Well, that's right. not been my experience at all with dispensationalists. Um, right. And and that's not to to badmouth one side or the other. It's just simply to say that if you hold to dispensationalism, and I think even if you hold to covenantalism, we understand that the day of the Lord is coming very soon. And we've got to get mm-hmm. that message out there. I think the anticipation, knowing that Christ could come at any moment, you know, without warning, should really encourage all of us to go out and tell our loved ones, our friends and family, our neighbors about Christ, because we don't know if we're going to be here the next day. So instead of making right. us lazy, it should actually invigorate us to go out and evangelize even more than we have in times past. All right. Yeah, I hear people talk about um escapism that, yeah. that the church suffered from escapism and and I guess in some part maybe that may be true but um I don't know in my own in my own world just in conversations with people and the things that we've talked about um it, it's almost an urgency to get get the word out and and it's so I guess in some ways it's almost formed the um the 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 sinner's prayer so to speak or yeah. the get them prayed in quickly you know kind of deal and and then seal the deal so to speak rather than trying to um just sow seeds or just to be a gardener like in like greg kokel talks about um so and by so the I way greg, I, greg kokel has even agreed now he's he's not a radical version but he's even he's even noted on one of his uh, videos that he he claims dispensationalism when understood properly understood that right. Israel is distinct from the church. Right. And and so I guess, you know, 
the church, I guess the church kind of takes a hit right now because um, so many people kind of blame it, blame, try to blame or point a finger at uh, dispensationalism or, or escapism is what they say. So they didn't get involved in in the community, didn't get involved in the schools, didn't get involved in, in these things because we're all, what's the, what's the difference? We're all going to, you know, get it raptured out of here. When in conversation, just in local conversations with people, maybe small groups or whatever, it's a different type of atmosphere. It's more of an urgency to actually discuss and talk and, and be involved in that stuff. So I'm really, I guess, you know, the church has taken a bad hit for it, but on the other side of it, I, that's not what I see in day-to-day. I, I think, honestly, it's an ad hominem against the viewpoint. I, I know mm-hmm. the only way that it could ever be escapist is if you re, if the person doesn't hold any concern for the lost. If, you're, if, mm. if you don't care about the lost and you don't care about the, the, the uh, spiritual destination of, of people around you, then, yeah, it could be escapism. But but then again, if you don't, if you're not concerned with the lost, then maybe the person needs to reevaluate whether they're right with the Lord to begin with, you know. So um, so yeah, I, I think it's an ad hominem against the church, really, because in my experience, from people who have who hold this viewpoint, um, that's not been my experience at all. My my experience is like yeah. yours that there's an urgency in this that we yeah. we need to tell people before. It's too late, you know, because we don't know right. when Christ is going to come. Right, and so then, then again comes that that other side of it, where, like I said, you know, we we rush them in and uh, get them to get them to pray the sinner's prayer, but then we don't follow up or or help them along the way, you know, and you know, is the sinner's prayer biblical? You know, I mean, those kind of things always come up in those kind of questions, but. But it's, you know, it's almost like, um, okay, on to the next one, rather than spending time discipling. So I can see both sides of the argument, um, but, you know. Well, you know, I think if you go back to Romans 10 9, I think there is some, I think a lot of times people, Bible teachers will, will sometimes try to make a name for themselves to get us to question some of our practices. I think the mm-hmm. sinner's prayer is biblical in the sense that if it could, it, in the sense if it coheres with Romans ten nine, because right. Romans ten nine tells us that if a person confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their right. heart that God has raised him from the dead, the person shall be saved. It's as simple as that. But right. with that salvation comes discipleship. And I, I would wholeheartedly right. agree that the I don't think the problem right. is the sinner's prayer. I think the problem is is that we're not following through, following through, yeah, and letting people on. know about the the life that they should be, the growth that they should have in Christ Jesus, growing in the in the nature of Jesus, that sanctification process that follows. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I think we've really we've really fallen. Um, mm-hmm. But but getting people to profess Christ, I, I don't see anything wrong with that. Uh, right. But, but now again, in, in contrast, I do think maybe we put too much emphasis on a formula that we devise rather than what the Bible teaches. So I do think we That's need true. to make sure what we're emphasizing is biblical. Right. So I, th- I think so. I, I, just just to quickly summarize, just to make sure I've, I've clarified my point. I didn't mean to interrupt you. 
I do think we need to emphasize that salvation comes by placing faith in Christ, calling Him Lord, believing in the concept of resurrection. Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But I think that in to fulfill the Great Commission, we need to also add the discipleship element to that, and that's where we're failing. Right, and have, and it's it's biblical to say to confess that, repent, and then be discipled. Exactly. I think that's you can follow that biblical model. Uh, so if there was any sort of formula, it would be, it would be, you know, follow what the scripture says. Yeah, yeah, and 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 get tell people the way to salvation. Don't complicate it. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. Um, it's it's very simple. Simple enough a child can understand it. It's, okay. it's not rocket science, and God made it that way. I mean, He could have made it elaborate and complicated, but He didn't. Um, right. But at the same time, we've we've got to we've got to grow and we've got to develop. We've got to build communities, trusting communities, and that's where we have really really fallen. Right, and that's that's part of you know like it. For me, in men's ministry, teaching the guys that that we we must be disciple makers of our own of our own children first, and and walking those those pathways with them. So go back to what Jesus said. You know, we must first, you know, to 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 speak the word in and go out and disciple and and start in Jerusalem. That that's a signification of of our home of our of our mm-hmm. home place of where they were with the location first doing that first and as we do that first then it spreads out from from there um into the rest of the world um you know into our local communities into our regions and so on and so forth and and i think that's that's something that's important and i think if we all start focusing in on taking care of those that we are closest to first absolutely and you know if we're honest we all fall short you know <laughs> yeah. you know from where we need yeah. to be i know i have you know it's it's and it's difficult especially with the covid stuff you know it's it's yeah. throwing a monkey wrench and everything but you know that's one thing my wife and i we were talking about about you know getting back to some daily night or nightly devotionals and we used to do that and we've kind of that's kind of fallen by the wayside and that's something we've got to get back and doing yeah yeah, well, you find new rhythms and new things, and and sometimes just uh, spending some time thinking about that and pondering and wanting to get back to some of that. It's you know having some time to just even to literally just having time to laugh, to laugh exactly. at each other, laugh with each other. That does actually more discipleship than you know. Absolutely. What does it say? A merry heart so, is like medicine, yeah. something like that. <laughs> yep. 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 Number four. Brian, this is a short question, but why such big words? <laughs> it's actually a good question. You know, I think it, it, in anything, the first step is trying to understand the language. Uh, because mm-hmm. I know we had a conversation off the podcast about this, and, and I won't go into all the logical steps. That might be something we can look at in another podcast. But but uh, I think at first, at first, just defining the terminology, understanding what the terms mean goes a long way. A lot of these terms, biblical uh, and theological circles, a lot of these terms come from Greek terms. Again, like eschatology, eschaton, and logos, the study of the end times. Uh, the, the same thing like theos and logos, the study of God. Theos means God. Um, it even goes into um, what's called pneumatology. The word pneuma 
means spirit. So it would be the study of the Holy Spirit. Uh, soteriology comes from the Greek word soter, meaning salvation. So it's the study of salvation. Um, um, hamartia is, is, is a word for sin. And so hamatology is the study of, of sin. So it goes on and on and on. A lot of these terms come from, the, from Greek origins. Uh, uh, or Greek terminology that's been adopted by the church over time, and you know, and, and you got to understand too, Christianity is a two thousand year old movement, right. and so uh, it started off in the New Testament with with uh, Greek uh, writings, and so a lot of the terminology goes back to the Greek terms. And so that's why it sounds so weird when we talk about eschatology. I mean, what in the world is that? But it's actually coming from the Greek terms uh, used for right. the concepts. Right. And it's, I don't know about you, but it bugs me that when I say, um, when I talk about, uh, you know, our Bellator Christi is an apologetic website, you know, and an apologetic ministry, and, they're, and they kind of give you that twisted head look, and it's like, and then you have to go and explain <laughs> yeah. what, what apologetics means. And, and so you got to spend time actually defining, laying out the groundwork so people really understand where you're coming from. I, I think there has to be a little bit of care um, when we're, when we're actually talking about and discipling and, and actually just even in conversation with people about biblical concepts that spend some time explaining some of that if they, you know, even if they, even if they, uh, even if they do kind of understand it, spend some time even, you know, because I think that not only does that lay out the groundwork, but it also maybe takes down some of that, that wall. Yeah, and the same thing. I mean, honestly, the same thing is true when you're talking about um, when you when you're talking about um, philosophy. There are philosophical terms used that that have to be understood and have to be learned before you engage the concepts. But I even found, you know, one of the, the classes I took challenged me personally about the different terms we use, church words that we use that the general public may not know. Uh, like for even the word epistle, a lot of people don't know what an epistle is. So when you talk about an epistle, they think it's a wife of an apostle, you know, or something right. like that. So, so we were challenged uh, once before to write out our testimony without using church terms, and it turned out to be a lot more difficult than I thought it would be. Wow, I can't. Wow. That's uh, that's something that I think <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, try to write out your your um, testimony without that, without using those uh, churchy words. That uh, that might end up being being something something fun to try to do. Yeah, absolutely. So, number five, is it important to understand these differences when having an a, a evangel evangelistic conversation? That's a good question. I, you know, I, I think that uh, you know we are part of the same family of Christ, whether we be premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennialist. I've got good friends and uh, of mine who hold to various viewpoints. Uh, in fact, I, there's a guy on, online, a uh, very prominent individual. I consider him a friend um, who holds to postmillennialism. You know. I don't hold to that view. I mean, of all the views, I think it's the weakest one. But that's me. But do I still consider my brother in Christ? Absolutely. So I, okay. I don't think the differences we have in eschatology um, 
mark whether or not we're a Christian or not. I do think there are there are important distinctions between the different branches. But let's be honest, you know, a lot most people missed the core concepts of prophecy as it related to the Messiah when Jesus came. I mean, they were there. They were there in, right. in, in full view, but most people, the vast majority of people didn't catch it, people who were studying the Bible. So it very well may be that it happens something completely different than all these views have in mind. It kind of is a kind of a humorous story. I, I had a, a pastor uh, of mine years ago who you know, I asked him, are you premillennialist, amillennialist, or postmillennialist? And he said, well, I'm a panmillennialist. I said, what's a panmillennialist? He said, I figure God's going to pan it all out in the end, so I'm going to leave it up to him. <laughs> That's pretty funny. We just said that uh, last week, uh, Eric and I were were talking uh, we're talking about after after church, and uh, I rolled up with in the in the truck, and and he was walking by, and we kind of talked about it. He says, Yeah, I kind of sometimes you know you kind of wonder if you just need to stick to the pan theology. <laughs> like, <laughs> Started laughing because, but not a lot of people would have got it. I started laughing because he's like, "Yeah, it'll all pan out in the end." So, <laughs> makes me laugh. And, and I do That's think good. we need to have some humility when it comes to this. I mean, I do think there are certain perspectives that are more biblically grounded than others, uh, and, sure. and you know. But at the end, the end, you know, quite honestly, you know, God's God's in control. We know He's going to win, and I think the core fundamentals right. are there. Right. So in this, you know. As we talk about this, um, as we're talking about es- the, the esch- eschatological uh, concepts here, and and as we dig deeper into it and we start finding out all these different concepts, we kind of go back. The roots are are important of where these things actually started taking place, and and how we got where we're at now to where we can have these conversations. We all still agree, you know, that the blood of Christ saves, so on and so forth. But but where did the roots of these views actually start from? Well, it's interesting, you know, and I was looking into this, and um, and I thought Amillennial didn't, didn't start until Augustine. Well, interestingly, there are uh, reasons to believe that the early church at least in second generation following, um, held to either premillennialism or amillennialism. Now, it seems like the vast majority of, of second generation Christians who are interpreting the, the biblical text held to premillennialism. Uh, that was, quite honestly, the, the largest viewpoint uh, that was held. I mean, Justin Martyr in the second century, he held to it. And you can even take it back as far as Papias who lived in the end of the first century, who was a student of John the Apostle. Um, now, now Eusebius, the historian, he holds to an amillennial viewpoint, and he and we don't have the the problem is, is we don't have many of the writings left of Papias, but we do know about Papias. He, there are some of his writings left, but in the fragments, uh, but even despite the fragmentary nature of what we have of Papias, Eusebius basically calls out Papias, and he calls him as, as if he's not intellectually astute because he holds to a literal <laughs> thousand-year reign. And so Eusebius is calling him out here in his histories. But, uh, but, but it's interesting that you have these two viewpoints, but it seems it's like if you push... They're calling each other out. That's yeah. hilarious. 
So, so even in the late first century, there's this viewpoint. It's actually given a name called Chileanism or Chileism, uh, where it's almost like no, no. <laughs> Honestly, the first time I heard that, I thought, "Huh, is that kind of similar to Chiltonism?" I don't know, but <laughs> but it is quite frankly. Uh, even Doctor Price mentioned this in class one time. It has a lot of similarities to the dispensational viewpoint. Uh, they hold to a thousand-year reign of Christ. They hold to a distinction between Israel and the church. And Papias seems to have held this viewpoint, and Chileists seem to have held this viewpoint as well. Um, but amillennialism, it was around about second, third century. It really started getting uh, gaining steam. Augustine may have held to amillennialism. That's not a hundred percent whether he did or not. And uh, Clement of Alexandria, it appears that he may have. Eusebius seems to have. So there were individuals who held to an amillennial viewpoint later as you progress. But uh, there may have been some individuals early on who held something of a millennialist viewpoint, but it seems like if you go back to ground zero, the vast majority of people coming from the original church seem to hold some kind of a pre-millennial viewpoint. Post-millennialism, interestingly, did not really start coming about until the 1600s. So of the three main viewpoints concerning the millennialism, millennialism, the millennium, uh, this one is the latest uh, it came about in the 1600s. The Savoy Declaration in 1658 refers to a post-millennial viewpoint. This really became steam around the time of the Great Awakening. When the Spirit of God started moving, people saw these communities change. Jonathan Edwards, John Owens, uh, many of these individuals thought, well, you know, they kind of held to all millennial viewpoints anyhow. Um, and they were more Calvinistic in their interpretation, so that kind of not always, not always, uh, but many times, you know, strong Calvinists tend to hold to an amillennial viewpoint. But nonetheless, they saw God moving, God changing um, the society, and they thought, well, maybe it's going to be a situation where we keep preaching the gospel. This is going to happen, and then things will get better and better and better till Christ returns. That actually went out the window, though, in the '40s when we had uh, the the Second World War when people saw the atrocities of uh, Nazi Germany right. and the things of that nature, they thought, well, there's no way this can be, this can be the case. So it, yeah. it's a late invention. You know, people criticize um, tribulationists for being a later uh, interpretation, which I don't think it necessarily is. I think it, it was there before Darby. But actually, post-millennialism is, is the youngest of all the viewpoints, quite honestly. Let's see. I was just going to say that. That's um, you hear critics of the the rapture view or the you know the the pre-trib view, um, saying that that that's a that's an early thought. But it sounds to me like it was actually one of the later or earlier um, thoughts in the in the teachers yeah i mean it wasn't necessarily you know spelled out as far as the tribulational viewpoints but um mm -hmm. you know uh, but to say that there was a literal millennium i don't think there's any there's any argument in biblical scholarship that the early that the early church the vast majority of members of the early church held to a literal thousand year reign um now mm -hmm. was it pre-trib mid-trib post-trib eh, 
that's that's a little more difficult to to figure out. But um, at least as far as a millennial reign, they they held that pretty strongly. Interesting. Well, I mean, I come from a different background, you know, being a Catholic, coming from a Catholic background, you, you know, more in the Baptist background and, and various others. What historical church doctrines hold to what views, um, you know, like the Reform, the Baptist, Catholic, etc.? Yeah, a good question. Uh, from what I gather, this isn't true of in all of all in all cases because I've met some Catholics who held the pre pre millennial I can't talk pre millennial viewpoints. But the vast the vast majority, uh, if if we're just looking at categories, the vast majority of Catholicism generally leans towards amillennialism, uh, and a lot of that came about especially when. Um, in the medieval era when the church gained a lot of power uh, in different governments through the papacy. Um, and, and so I'm not saying that was the reason they held to it, but it, it, didn't, it didn't hurt either. Um, Protestants uh, tend to hold more to a premillennial viewpoint. And again, some Catholics do too. I mean, it's, it's difficult to say just all Catholics hold to this viewpoint because it's not necessarily true. You're talking about a large, large church. Yeah. Uh, but but Protestants normally tend to be more premillennial, but of course that's not always the case. I mean, there's there are Protestants who are amillennial, Protestants who are postmillennial. Um, with Baptists, generally speaking, Baptists are premillennial. Most of them, I would be, I would say, if you were to take a poll, most of them would be pre premillennial. Um, but there are various viewpoints, you know, with with Baptists in. Uh, uh, I would dare say more Protestants probably hold to premillennialism, uh, but there are a growing number of Protestants out there that are beginning to adopt amillennialism, and, and even some, um, as we were mentioning, po- postmillennialism. Of all the viewpoints, though, let me say, biblically speaking, I think postmillennialism is the weakest of the viewpoints because I just don't think it coheres with some of the teachings of Jesus on the uh, sermon on the uh, on Mount of Olives. I just don't think it does. Right, and I don't want to. I don't want to confuse this, so don't don't take this wrong. I don't don't confuse it with what I'm saying. But I'm going to confuse it. It sure, seems to be, <laughs> yeah, it sure seems to be like like um like cults hold to that view more than um more than more than actual uh, biblical based uh, Christian teaching. Now, did they hold to which view? Your your. Uh, post-millennial yeah yeah and i can see that being the case you know because some people would say you know they're ushering in the 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 uh coming of christ by bringing doing x y and z but again i think if we see first thessalonians 4 it tells us that it's going to be an instantaneous thing if we go back to the the sermon on the uh, mount of olives the olivet discourse we see that it's going to come instantaneously uh, it's going to be a time where two people are working in the field, one's taken, the other one's left. So I just, right. biblically speaking, I have just a really difficult time with postmillennialism. I also do with amillennialism, but but there again, that comes back to: do you view these prophecies literally, or do you view them metaphorically? Right. Right. So, if having a solid biblical hermeneutic process how do we get such different views then 
This actually, I think there are three schools of biblical interpretation that go back even to early the early church. Um, so back in, I'm trying to think of the dates, what, 400s? Three, four, four, three or four, three hundred, four hundred, somewhere along that time. I, I had to look it up. It's, in general, I used to. <laughs> I should know this, and I want to have to know this for my as I get ready for my church history comp coming up here in a few weeks. But uh, but that'll be one of the things I know. I'm definitely going to study. <laughs> what was that? Just I said. So my questions will actually help you out. Yeah, man, you're helping me out a lot. <laughs> but. But you basically had these two schools that developed. Uh, the Alexandrian school, which was far more allegorical in their interpretation. You had Oregon of Alexandria, Clement of Alexandria. Interestingly, Clement of Alexandria is an amillennialist, some people believe. Um, but they held more of a symbolic nature in interpretation. In fact, if you read some of their writings, you, you're left wondering, how in the world did they get that interpretation from Scripture? But it really comes from their uh, from their their uh, symbolic viewpoint, the allegorical viewpoint. So, uh, but there arose a different branch called the Antiochene or Antiochene, depending on how you pronounce it. This came from the the city of Antioch of Syria, and uh, the Antiochenes were saying, "No, we need to get back to a literal interpretation of Scripture." Now, I, I happen to think that Augustine's interpretation, Augustine of Hippo, that his interpretation skills are probably the best because he starts with the literal interpretation, which now Oregon did as well, but he didn't, he didn't remain there. He went way off on the symbolic viewpoints. But Augustine, he, uh, he believed that we start with a literal interpretation of Scripture, and then we can open up to symbolic viewpoints, but it must start with a literal interpretation. So you must keep it in proper context. Kevin Van Hooser he argues in biblical interpretation that the Augustine, the Augustinian view, the uh, means of interpretation is the best. But you start with a literal interpretation, move to a a uh, spiritual nation as as is developed or given forth by the Scripture. But it still comes down to a literal interpretation first so um, I think the way you approach approach biblical interpretation uh, will determine a lot about which viewpoint you land about where you land on the spectrum hmm that's interesting because you know you think about it there's you know the question kind of come about in my head when I was thinking about these questions was if we're all if we're all if we're all studying and using proper hermeneutics, how can we come up with some of these some of these views? But what you just what you just explained was was actually very helpful in, in kind of seeing where we can. It, it just it's not like they were way far off. It was just a different uh, a different view. Yeah, a different methodology, and we have the same problem now. And this is why the class bibliology, I think, is 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 probably one. I mean, all the classes I took in the PhD program were important, but I honestly think bibliology, even as difficult as it was, may be one of the most important for our times because it comes. To, you know, even now we have a difference of uh, the uh, surrounding the question of who determines the in, an interpretation of a text. A lot of people in, in postmodern times, 
the times in which we live, say that the readers define meaning in a text. But we really right. go back to is what Morrison, Dr. Morrison argued for, as well as Kevin Van Hooser, that we need to go back to an authorial intent, understanding that the meaning is what the author is trying to communicate. And it's our job to understand that. And, it, and you've got to do the dirty work to get there. Right. So, can holding to some of these views create a works or legalistic-based theology, then? I think so. Uh, particularly, and again, I'm not trying to slam post-millennialists. I know I'm coming off, probably coming off obnoxious to post-millennialists in the podcast, and that's not my intention. But I do think post-millennialism, the concept that that we can bring about, we can usher in the return of Christ, it can be very much a work-based uh, theological system. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not to say that we're not supposed to go out and work and work. You know, we're supposed to go out and work and work hard. But I think you can have that concept in a pre-millennial viewpoint as much as you can a, a post-millennial viewpoint. Um, and again, I think the problem we find in Scripture is, well, excuse me, the problem we find with post-millennialism is that in Scripture, Jesus tells us that the days when He returns is going to be like the the days of Noah. It's going to be like uh, the days of. Uh, he kind of hints that it's going to be like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to be these this awful time on a global scale, we find, that things are going to get progressively worse and worse at that time. It's going to go, it's going to revert back to a worse depraved society. And I think as we look at the span of history, uh, we see that people have an uncanny, uncanny ability to wage war. I mean, we, we discover uh, nuclear fission, and what do we do? We make a nuclear bomb out of that. Uh, we have a way of wanting to destroy one another. And um, it seems to be that's the nature of humanity as we go along. Yeah. We look at, do we look at the history to, uh, to see where the future comes from? Exactly. As, as Dr. King would say, per, uh, perennialism. We look to the past and understand our present and future. Well, folks, it's been good. And uh, we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us. And we value that time. Our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind as a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier Soldier on, on, friends. listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas.
Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristi.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristi.com now and submit your question.